Okay, let's just bow our hearts as we turn to God's word again this morning, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, we pray this morning that as we turn to this last chapter in the book of Galatians, that you speak to us. And Lord, just cement to our understanding, our learning, Lord, the things that you've been teaching us. Father, I pray that you would help us to learn to live these lives of liberty, Lord, that your word speaks of. The freedom that you've purchased for us. Help us to really understand what that means and to start to live that abundant life that Jesus said his followers would know and experience. And so, Father, we just thank you for this time. We pray that you speak to us clearly, each Lord of us in different places with our walk with you, Lord, different circumstances in our lives. But you are the God that knows all things. And so, Lord, just teach us now. We ask your Holy Spirit to be our teacher now, um, that he would reveal and equip and edify us for the work of ministry. So we just give you this time, Lord, take my words and use them for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed this study through Galatians because, I, I don't know about you, I've seen things that I've never seen before. Uh, and the Lord has just revealed new things that are so exciting. When you see things in God's word, it's always fresh whenever you come. Uh, and just to remind us what we've seen as we've gone through this journey, Paul has thoroughly demonstrated the futility and ineffectiveness of religion. Okay, religion is simply man's effort to get right with God. It's a, a system of works where we do something, and by doing that, whatever, then we perceive that, of course, God is pleased with that. And then that becomes the way it is, that we then build on that, and it becomes tradition and so on, and we get bound by that. It becomes a chain, in a sense, around our neck. That's exactly what the Jews had got into. They ended up with not just the law, but all the other bits they added on to the law. And religion is just a, a chain around our necks. It's something that we can't even keep to the standards that we set, let alone God's standard. Now in contrast to that, Paul has clearly presented that the gospel of the grace of God is based on relationship. It's so thoroughly and fundamentally different to religion. And relationship, of course, is, we've seen that it's total and complete in its ability to deliver man from this present world and the bondage of the works of the flesh, again, which we've all inherited from Adam, and to present us faultless, as Jude tells us, before the throne of God, knowing, of course, it's the same spirit that indwells us that was dwelling in Christ. That's the incredible thing to just get our heads around. The Holy Spirit that indwelt Jesus indwells us as believers. And of course, the purpose is that we might then bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. One of the things we saw last week is that Jesus said that we should love one another as I have loved you. An impossible challenge to the natural man. But of course, to somebody who then is given the same Spirit that was in Christ, you realize that's not impossible. But we need to allow and let God work and that, that new life that he's placed within us, we need to feed and nurture and let that grow. Now, what we're going to conclude this morning is really four contrasts that Paul has been showing us, has been going through. First one was liberty versus bondage. We looked at that last time. Secondly, the spirit versus the flesh. And you see that great contrast that Paul lays out. And you know, we were seeing, of course, we talked a little bit on Thursday night about the, the, the way that the, when you see the flesh presented as it is there in Galatians 5, it's abhorrent. It's horrible. You think, why would anybody want to live that way? But of course, we end up getting caught up in those things of the flesh so easily. The writer of the Hebrews says, speaks of the sin which so easily ensnares. 
The contrast that we're going to then look at this morning are others versus self. And then finally, God's glory versus man's approval. You know, why do we do the things that we do? Do we do them because we want other people to go, oh, well done? Or to look at us and think that we're righteous or holy or whatever words we may apply? Or do we do it because we want to bring glory to God? You know, are we trying to be a man pleaser or a God pleaser? And so really we've got the contrast again with all of these things, the fruit of the Spirit versus the works of the flesh. Really that is the the summation of these things that we're looking at. We're either walking in the Spirit and not gratifying the desires of sinful nature, or we're walking according to the flesh and the Spirit life in us, in in a sense our, our spiritual walk with the Lord will suffer. Now let me remind you again, we looked at this verse, this comes from the Living Bible, um, J.B. Phillips translation, and he just puts this, this is from Galatians 5, for we naturally love to do evil things that are just the opposite from the things that the Holy Spirit tells us to do. And the good things that we want to do when the Spirit has his way with us are just the opposite of our natural desires. These two forces within us are constantly fighting each other to win control over us, and our wishes are never free from their pressures. And we looked in detail at this last week, the battle that we're in. Now, we saw that Paul said, stand fast, last week. I looked at, actually, Paul says six times in Scripture, this word, stand fast, all in relation to our walk in the Spirit. And in a sense, it's very much like a military term. It's drawing the line. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13 to 14, Galatians 5, 1, we saw last time. Philippians 1, 27, also Philippians 4, verse 1. 1 Thessalonians 3.8 and 2 Thessalonians 5.15, we find this Greek word, stiko. And it just literally means to persevere. It's not just a stand fast for now. It's an ongoing, ever-present. We have to stand fast. We have to remember that there is this battle there between the flesh life and the spirit. And we have to choose. We're not going to find there's a middle ground. We can't sit in the middle. You're one side or the other. And again, much of this we went into detail to last week. So let's jump forward now. Let's move on to chapter 6 and to conclude our study. And Paul then starts with this others versus self really situation. And he starts by saying, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Now, the first thing Paul again speaking to them is brethren. You know, these were people that were dear to Paul. He planted this church. He cared about these believers. And he says, if a man be overtaken. Yeah, Paul really dealing with the case here of a Christian who is caught in sin or caught by sin. is another way that maybe you could put that. You know, the thought is, of course, of someone running. But sin being faster seems to overtake and catch them. That's the kind of uh, illustration that Paul kind of paints. He often uses these ideas of running uh, in analogies that he gives. But notice the absence of judgmentalism and the need for meekness in what Paul is saying. We'll come back to that as we go on. So first of all, we're looking at an individual, a believer, not looking at somebody outside the church, somebody within the church that becomes overtaken in a sin, in a fault. Now it says that you which are spiritual. Now really it's just speaking about those that are walking in the spirit. Not those that are walking according to the flesh, but those that are actually walking in the spirit. Not because, again, we're trying to obey a set of rules, but because of love. As we said last time, love is the reason we can have this liberty and yet not choose to do the works of the flesh because we found something that we love more. 
which is serving Christ. And because we have that love for Christ, because we're so grateful for what he's done for us, it's not a chore to walk in the Spirit. It's not something that we find, oh, we've got to do this. No, it should be something we enjoy doing. If you love somebody, you want to do things to please them. And that's the whole basis. Love is, as we've seen so many times, the basis of all of the things that we've been looking at here. And so whoever it is that is going to get involved in trying to restore such a one must be somebody who is spiritual themselves, somebody who themselves are walking in the Spirit. And then we're given this word, restore. I'm not going to go into all of the the Greek words that we go through this morning. There's a number of ones that are very interesting in their own right. But this one particularly, um, katerizo, it's a medical term and it's used for the setting of a broken bone. That's the idea of the, the word that we're given here, to restore, to mend something that's broken. And of course, it has the idea that we've got to tenderly deal with a brother or sister who's been overcome by sin. We've got to remember that they're still part of the body. Just as if you broke a a bone in your body. You can't just ignore it or cast it away. You've got to lovingly and gently restore. And there's a time of healing that will go on, a process. And we're told that we should do this in a spirit of meekness. Now, meekness, of course, is part of the fruit of the Spirit. As we said last time, it's not fruits, plural, of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. You don't get to choose which ones of these you want. If you are walking in the Spirit, then the the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, will work all of these things in your life. And so meekness being part of the fruit of the Spirit should be there. And meekness can be identified or defined as various definitions you can find. But I like this one, gentle under provocation. I think that's really good. I love that because of the implication of what we're looking at here. Because it would be very easy to get cross with somebody, to get provoked, to anger, to wrath, when we find that somebody maybe is doing something that we would, of course, disapprove of, that we would find contrary to the life that we've been given. When we find somebody that is, for whatever reason, indulging in the the life, the works of the flesh, things that we were looking at last time. And so the one that is to do this, of course, must be spiritual, but the way they must handle it is in a spirit of meekness. And incidentally, look at this, it's not just a pastor's role to do this. Each one of us are involved in this. Paul is addressing this to the pastor of the churches in Galatia, or the pastors of the churches in Galatia. This is to the body of the church. So each and every one of us has a responsibility if we find another that for whatever reason has been overcome by sin, that we're to restore them in a spirit of meekness. Again, not being provoked. Not allowing that natural kind of like, oh, really, you did that? You said this? You thought that? You see, meekness therefore draws on self-control, gentleness, kindness, and of course, love. And we should have this such love for each other because of the love that Christ has for us. And notice then we're also told we should do this considering thyself. Now, as we said a moment ago, Hebrews 12 verse 1, none of us are immune from the pressures of sin. Told this is the, the sin which so easily ensnares us. You know, if you think that you've overcome sin, that you've got complete victory over sin, you're deceived. Because sin will always be a constant pressure, a constant temptation to us in this life. And we have to choose, moment by moment, day by day, to walk in the Spirit. We are to be overcomers. That's absolutely true. 
one of the things we'll be looking at at our Bible study on Thursday from 1 John chapter 5 is exactly how we are to, to live this life as overcomers and applying all these things that we've been learning. You know, 2 Corinthians 1.12 speaks of, but for the grace of God. And it's very easy sometimes to get into a place where we think we would never do that. Well, we might not do that particular thing, but I guarantee you there's something else that we may stumble or fall with. You see, there is no place for a holier-than-thou attitude within a fellowship of believers. You see, the only reason that we can even call ourselves holy is because of Jesus Christ. Because we have been clothed with his righteousness. Romans 12, verses 3 to 5, we read this. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each one of us is one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Again, it starts this passage by just saying, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. You know, think of yourself with sober judgment. Think of the reality that you are just as liable to fall into temptation as anybody. We're told in 1 Corinthians 1.12 that there is no temptation taking you but such as is common to man. So there isn't anybody amongst us as a fellowship of believers who will fall into some sort of unique temptation that only they have stumbled with. Whenever we stumble or fall, it's something that is common to man. And it's surprising when we actually are open and honest with each other to find that actually a lot of us struggle with exactly the same things. But we're told that God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able. Well, this is just more of his amazing grace, isn't it? We're told that with the temptation, God will also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. See, God doesn't want us to be in bondage to the flesh. You see, we've been given this liberty. Everything is there for us. We're told that, in a sense, everything is, is on the table for us. But that which is good and wholesome and holy is that which God would have us choose. And again, the reason we should choose it is not because we've been told we must, but because we want to, because we love God and we don't want to do anything in our lives that would not only affect our relationship with God, but would harm our relationship with each other. See, this is so important that if we, for whatever reason, fall into sin, it will immediately affect our relationship with each other. And that will then affect our relationship with God. If it affects our relationship with God, it will affect our relationship with each other. It's just this this kind of whole circle that everything we've said just ties together. And one of the reasons, the driving factors in a sense behind us living a life walking in the Spirit is the love that we should have one for each other. Knowing that we're going to spend eternity together. That each of us here, we've been chosen. Just look around this morning. We've been chosen. Each of you. What a privilege. And the person sitting next to you has been chosen. I don't tend to watch um, much TV these days. But I did see just the tail end of The Apprentice the other night. Um, with my neck and back, I was... Uh, struggling to uh, to sleep and I just turned the telly on just to, to really catch up on the news headlines but The Apprentice was on and you get to the, that point at the end when they're getting close now to the one who Lord Sugar is going to choose to be his uh, next apprentice and you know there was a great excitement amongst this last group of five that it's come down to now that one of that five is going to be chosen 
for something that would really in the light of eternity mean nothing. We have been chosen by the King of Kings. And it's not just you on your own, but those around you. What a privilege we have. And again, we're told that there is no temptation that will affect you that won't affect other people. So when we stumble, when we fall, and there will be times, and John makes it very clear, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We're told that when we do sin, we are to confess that sin. You see, accountability is a very important part. We'll talk a bit more about that in a moment. We'll move on to verse 2 then of Galatians. So the first part is really Paul speaking about if we find somebody that's sinning, one of our fellow brothers or sisters, to do something about it in love, to restore them, not to condemn them, because we might be the next one to fall. And then we're told this beautiful verse, and you know that many times I've quoted this, is one of my favorite verses, I think it's the bedrock of the church in many respects. Bear you one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. I just think that any church, any congregation, any fellowship of believers really should just have this kind of imprinted in your hearts and minds that we should be bearing each other's burdens. And in a sense, this is a one-sentence summary of pretty much everything that we read in First John, of Philemon, of James, of many of the other writings of Paul and the other writers of the New Testament. It's about loving each other. Now, if we just bear each other's burdens, it's fulfilling the law of Christ. You see, the fulfilling of the law... It's to love thy neighbor. That's something that we've seen already. But of course, to bear one another's burdens is that love in action. It's not enough just to say that, yes, okay, we we love our neighbor as ourselves, or, you know, we love others within the congregation. If there's no action, this is what James speaks of, faith without works is dead. So we need to be bearing each other's burdens. And that really is that love in action. And it's not something, again, that to us should be a chore. It should be an absolute joy to do it. It's the outworking of the love that we have one for another. Interesting, there's a wonderful irony here. Because Paul tells us that we're going to fulfill the law of Christ by yielding to the Spirit and walking by faith. There's no work on our part as such. It's not a, a chore to serve each other. And because we're just resting on the completed work of Christ. Whereas the legalists and Judaizers who strive to keep the law fail. Because they continually try to do good works. So, you know, the ones who are trying to keep the law fail. The ones who are told in the sense that we can't keep the law, that we rest in the complete work of Christ, end up fulfilling the law because we naturally do the things that the law would require of us, not through compulsion, but because of love. Now this word burdens, is just interesting, in the Greek it's the word baros, it just means weight or fullness. And it's not just referring to practical burdens, of course that is one area. But it's also referring to spiritual burdens that we carry. And this is what we should be bearing for each other. And certainly, repeated temptations to sin is one area of burden. Repeated temptations to discouragement is another massive area that affects so many believers in so many ways. It's one of Satan's favorite tools, in a sense, to use discouragement on us, to make us want to quit or give up. Anguish over unsaved loved ones is another burden that many of us carry. Or confusion over circumstances that just look from the outside that God was not in them. Things that have happened that we don't really understand why God allowed them. They're the kind of burdens that we need to be bearing with each other. How are we to bear them? Well, repeated temptation to sin, simply accountability. 
James speaks about confessing your faults one to another. Now, of course, we're not talking about the Roman Catholic idea of confessionals and all that kind of thing. There is only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus. But we should be accountable one to another. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with going up to a brother or sister and saying, you know, look, I'm struggling with something. Unless you really feel it important to do so, it's probably not best to share the details. If you feel it really is important to share, then then do so. But just to be able to go and say to somebody, look, I'm struggling with something. Also, over the last couple of weeks, something keeps happening and I keep stumbling and keep thinking something or I've done something, whatever. Go to somebody and ask them to pray for you. And, you know, if somebody comes up to you and says that, you shouldn't look at them with a, you're doing what? Yeah, because it could be us. We've just seen already the meekness, the gentleness that we should show one to another. You know, repeated temptations to discouragement. Well, that's an easy one, isn't it? Just encourage each other. What a wonderful gift that is, the gift to be able to encourage. We read of Barnabas, that that was his name, the son of encouragement. But what an important role that is. You know, we need to realize that encouragement is not something that should be an optional thing within a church. It should be mandatory. Because each of us from time to time become discouraged. So we need to encourage each other. How many times do we think things about others and never actually say them? That had we have said them, would have been such a blessing to that other person's life. Anguish over unsafe loved ones. Well, for a start, we can unite in prayer. And I think that, Lord willing, after Christmas we get into the new year, what I propose we do in regard to this is have a list that we share amongst ourselves of names of loved ones or those that we want to pray for specifically. And I would suggest that we spend a week fasting and praying. Now, that's up to you how you want to fast. Some people want to have a complete fast. That's fine. Some people may want to have a partial fast. That's all right. This isn't a work of the flesh. This is something we do between us and God. I know somebody that just fasted for TV for a month. That's a good thing to do. There's all sorts of ways you can fast. Just use the time to pray. But I think in the new year, we'll get Christmas out of the way. We'll spend a week just praying for our loved ones. Praying that they would come into the kingdom, that their eyes would be open. Because it's a burden that many in this congregation carry. And it's something that we can do practically to help each other. And then we can give God the glory when we see those lives changed. Another area, of course, as I said, is confusion over circumstances. Well, it's simply looking to Jesus. There's a great song by a Christian singer-songwriter called Scott Wesley Brown. And the lyrics of the song simply go, When answers aren't enough, there is Jesus. Is more than just an answer to your prayers. You know, it's just looking to Jesus. A simple look to Jesus makes it right or right. I think the children's chorus went, didn't it? And sometimes we don't understand, and maybe there are things this side of eternity that we won't get. But looking to Jesus, looking at those nail prints in his hand, realizing the love that he has for us, There isn't anything that's going to happen that's outside of God's will, God's plan. And although we may not understand the reasons, God does. And in the light of eternity, maybe we'll see. But that's what we need to do with each other when we go through those various trials that we maybe don't see and understand. It's looking to Jesus. James speaks of the joy that we should have. Verse 3, then, if a man thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. And we're just carrying on the same thing. Because we're all susceptible to such burdens as we've just looked at. Yeah, we must never allow a 
presupposed the standard of righteousness to exist in our lives. Because that will see us then as superior to others. You know, sometimes you see that with Christians, that they almost, they've come to that place, they've arrived. But you know, we haven't. We're all in the same place. And we need to be walking together, encouraging each other, growing in grace each day. You know, and we must not be purposely blind to another's condition. For we may soon ourselves be the, the ones in need. And you know, so often, isn't it true, you go up to somebody, how are you? And they say, I'm fine, thank you. And as long as that's the answer, then that's great. We're happy with that. But it's when we get a bit more than that, it's like, Ugh! it's when they start to give you, well, actually, and it's like, oh, um, really, is that the time? Just, we kind of, we ask that question sometimes very superficially, don't we? Well, as a body of believers, because of our love for each other, we should ask that question, how are you? Not because we're just being polite and kind of like the how's the weather type of conversation, because we genuinely care. You know, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Of course, the remedy for self-conceit is found in verse 4, which we move on to and we read, But let every man prove his own work, and then should he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. The idea of proving Everyone is told to, we have this Greek word, uh, dokimezo, to test his own actions. It comes from First Peter. And you know, it means that rather than comparing himself with others, he should step back and take an objective look at himself and his accomplishments. And of course, in doing that, we can take comfort in what God has done through our life. You know, what is it that you've done that you look back on and you're pleased with in your life? I guarantee you it's the work that God has done in your life. It's not of yourself. You see, all the good things have come from God anyway. And then in verse 5, we're told, For every man shall bear his own burden. Now, at first glance, that may seem almost contradictory to what we've seen in the verse 2, which says that we should bear each other's burdens, because now we're saying we should bear his own burden. But it's not talking about the same thing. You see, the Christian does, in fact, test himself by carrying his own load. This is what Jesus spoke about. It doesn't contradict verse 2. The reference there is really to a heavier crushing loads, more than one could carry on their own. In this verse, is a different Greek word that's used to designate the, the pack that's usually carried by a marching soldier. This is something that you are carrying, the burden you're carrying because you are Jesus Christ, because you have chosen to give up the right to yourself to him, because you've chosen to maybe give up home and family and friends and whatever else. Again, it's the burden that Jesus assigns to his followers, Matthew eleven thirty is a reference, Romans fifteen, one John three sixteen, and so on. A number of scriptures that refer to this burden in a sense that we carry because we have chosen to serve Christ. But of course, we shouldn't neglect our personal responsibilities. You Christians are members of Christ's body, and a Christian in sin weakens the body. We need to be mindful of that. As we said already, it affects our relationships. If a person does not submit to restoration, so if there is somebody amongst us that for some, whatever reason will not come to that place of repenting before God and being restored, well then, we've got a couple of scriptures that we can refer to. Matthew 18, which tells us how to deal with certain individuals that won't repent. 1 Corinthians 5 is another situation that Paul highlights that happened in Corinth, of the way he dealt with the individual. Again, in love. Then Paul kind of changes tack slightly. He has lit him that is taught in the word, communicate unto him that teaches in all good things. 
Now, it's interesting, the commentators seem to be pretty much agreed what Paul is aiming at here. Because the idea, the word here is uh, koinonia, very similar to the word that we have for fellowship. And it really just means here to come into communion or fellowship with or to become a sharer or made a partner. You see, the responsibility of each believer is to shoulder the financial support of the pastor teachers in the fellowship. This is reiterated throughout the New Testament. Perhaps maybe the Judaizers that were in Galatia that Paul is referencing, alluding to here, had influenced some of the believers to slack off in their support of the teachers as a special group who were giving their full time to this ministry and who were reimbursed for their labours. And, of course, maybe that was happening, maybe that was starting to cause a problem. But Paul is simply saying, you know, those that are taught the word are to reciprocate, they're to give back to the ones that teach them. Of course, it's a concept of voluntary giving. It's to provide for the Lord's servants. It's totally in contrast to the law. You see, again, we haven't moved on, in in essence, in the subject. We're still dealing with law and grace. The things that you do because you have to, because you're under a law, and the things that you do voluntarily because it's love. You see, this idea that Paul is presenting was revolutionary, because the Jews typically were taxed to support the priests. The Gentiles also had paid fees, and they'd made vows to sustain their religions. It wasn't something that they opted to do, necessarily. It was something that they were expected or had to do. But the admonition is clear that as a teacher shares the good things of the word of God, a believer is to reciprocate by sharing all the good things with his instructor. Paul carries on and says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man sows that shall he also reap. Again, these verses elaborate on the previous exhortation. First, a solemn warning is saying that God cannot be mocked. No man can snub God, literally turn your nose up at God. You know, and the simple rule is that a man reaps what he sows. You know, it's like the law of gravity. You know, the law of gravity is, in the physical realm, it's unbreakable. Well, this is a spiritual law that is also unbreakable. You will reap what you sow, and God will not be mocked. Each sower, effectively, will decide what his harvest will be. And that's worth thinking of, because even in regards to the works of the flesh, if we allow those things into our lives, well, the moment you do, you're already sowing seeds for a harvest that will come later, in one way or another. We're told, for he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap everlasting life. This is interesting because, again, we're told if a person sows to please that sinful nature, as spending money to indulge in the flesh, he's going to reap a harvest that will fade into oblivion. A harvest that has no eternal value whatsoever, or possibly even worse. He's going to develop appetites that will prove difficult, more difficult to control than he'd known previously. Matthew seven sixteen and 17 just reminds us that every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. Hosea 8, verse 7 speaks of sowing the wind and reaping the whirlwinds, the idea of sowing and reaping. In Job 4, verse 8, Eliphaz makes the comment, a lot of the comments that are made in Job are not necessarily valid by Job's comforters, so-called. But he says here that men who sow wickedness reap the same. Well, that certainly is true. On the other hand, if you use your funds to support the Lord's work or so to please the Spirit, you're promoting your own spiritual growth. You'll reap a harvest that will last forever. It's of eternal value. You know, what a wonderful thing. You've been given this option. 
of how you choose to live. And again, this should be done because of love. We should live this life where we want to walk in the Spirit, sow to the Spirit, not because we feel we ought to, we have to, because the pastor said we should, but because actually we just want to do it. Why should you give to the church? Not because you have to, not because you're expected to, because you want to. Because you want to bring blessing, not just on yourself, but on the whole of the fellowship. Again, though a broader application of the principle is legitimate, it seems very clear that Paul really is dealing with the question of financial support for the Galatian churches, and particularly the leaders of those churches. Then he says, let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. And as we said earlier, it's so easy to become discouraged. Satan will quickly discourage us. And spiritual sowing sometimes seems to be a long time before the harvest comes. But this is a, a law that God has established. And, you know, in the face of this reality, the apostle charged the Galatians to not become weary or give up because the ultimate harvest is certain because this is something that God has promised. You know, we started the, the year, didn't we, talking about love and the promises of God. And we're kind of concluding the year speaking about love and the promises of God. God has given us these promises. That if we sow to the Spirit, what a blessing will be there for us. If we love each other, what a freedom we have. If God is first, if we seek first the kingdom of God. Interestingly, Paul makes the comment here, we shall reap. Includes himself, because he's got no doubt that he'd been frustrated in labors on behalf of the Galatian Christians. You know, he'd done so much in planting these churches. And he's looking at them and thinking, you know, is, is this the harvest that I'm receiving for that which I sowed? And really, of course, Paul is, I think, of the mindset that, no, there's something so much better that's going to come of this because what had been sowed was done being obedient to God. Again, the reaping will come at God's proper time, which may only be in part in this life, but ultimately it's going to come at the judgment seat of Christ. And that's another reason why we do what we do. It's not just because we're told here that we should do these things, but it's ultimately because of the reward that we are promised. And this should be a motivating factor for us, that we are promised that there are rewards awaiting us if we sow to the Spirit, if we live a godly life, if we put our treasure in heaven. When they told us, we have therefore the opportunity, let us do good unto all men, but especially unto them who are of the household of faith. And notice this, that Christians have a measure of responsibility to all people to do good. And of course you see throughout the world Christians helping in all sorts of ways, all sorts of people, whenever the need arises. You know, take the feeding of the 5,000 as one example. You know, it was both the ones who Jesus knew would be saved, who were really truly followers of him, and also those that were just going along, were listening. I mean, the ears tickled in a sense, but weren't really intent on following Jesus. Well, they all got to be blessed by the goodness and grace of Jesus on that occasion. And it's the same today. That we are, as believers, to be good to all people. But especially, we have a responsibility to those who are our brothers and sisters. Those whom we will share eternity with. You know, of course, the benevolence of Christians shouldn't be restricted. But believers are to have the priority. It's really as in a home, you know, the family needs are met first and then those of the neighbours. That's an idea that we read in 1 Timothy 5 verse 8. So this passage really speaks clearly about a Christian's social responsibility. And notice it's addressed again to the individual 
believer at this point. So every one of us has this. So the conclusion of this first part of this final chapter is Paul brought the Galatian letter to a close. He emphasized some of the great issues discussed throughout the epistle. His conclusion that we're just going to look at now contains both a summary and a final statement of the issues that the apostle felt so strongly about. So again, we've just looked at that others versus self, the way that we should be because of love, because of this desire to, to please God, not an obligation, but just because of that love that we have for him. We should be serving others, not self. And so finally, Paul will just look at this whole idea that that which we do should be for God's glory. He first starts by saying in verse 11, you see how large a letter I've written to you with my own hand. Now, this leads many to think this is something to do with Paul's eyesight. Paul here writing with his own hand. A lot of the letters that Paul writes at the end of Corinthians, Colossians, Thessalonians and so on, um, he, he writes the final bit himself. He had an amanuensis, a, a secretary in a sense, to write down for him uh, the letters as he seemingly dictated them. And then at the end, he sometimes makes these comments where he's written the final bit himself. And he seems to write with kind of large letters, is the idea, um, simply to do with his problem with his eyesight. Now, a lot of people you know, speculate as to what this is or why and so on, but I think very probably because of the situation that occurred on the Damascus Road. You remember Paul as he's traveling to Damascus before he's converted? He sees Jesus, this blinding light. That's going to affect your eyesight, I'm sure. And for the rest of Paul's life, he has this problem. It may well be that this is the thorn in the flesh that Paul speaks about. This problem he has with his eyes. It may be that. But whatever the situation, at the end of this letter, Paul now writes himself. And he says, As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. So really he's just saying the Judaizers who were insisting on circumcision... And the saying that it was necessary for salvation were really only doing it to please men. They were doing it because of what other people thought. They wanted to make a good impression. They were concerned what others would think of them or whether they might suffer persecution. And also they wanted to boast about the number of Galatians they'd hoped to win over to circumcision. It was something that they were doing for themselves. It was kind of a merit-earning right on their behalf. You know, the legalists knew the offense of the cross will be softened if they openly proclaim justification by faith and works. I mean, that wasn't really going to be too offensive to the Jews if we kept the Mosaic system, if we kept the law in there. And sadly, even today, there's many churches that introduce a number of rules and laws. Rules about the type of clothing you have to wear, or whether you have to wear certain head coverings, or all these kind of things that become legalistic. You know, even the type of translation of the Bible you should use. You're free to use what you want to. You're free to wear what you want to. There is no laws that we place here as a church, and no church should. People shouldn't be excluded because of the way they look, the way they dress, or anything else. But sadly, many churches get into legalism and start putting these things in as a condition almost. This was certainly the the problem that Paul was addressing. And if they could claim conversions, well, that was really good for them, wasn't it? It looked good on their behalf, to those that would look on from the outside. 
But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Paul makes a very bold and wonderful statement here. There is nothing else worth glorifying in. There is nothing else that we should really be concerned about. You see, the contrast is vivid as Paul declared his boasting was not in what he'd accomplished, but was in the cross. This is something that he'd received. His boasting was that I've been given something. I've been given something I didn't earn. Boasting is in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, for the Judaizers, the cross was an object of shame. For Paul, it was an object of glorying. See, they glorified the flesh. He glorified and gloried in the Savior. The cross, of course, speaks of the atonement of Christ, which Paul was clearly identified with. That We saw that back in Galatians 2, verse 20. And by which the world was crucified to Paul and he to the world. Let me unpack that a little if I can. See, the world system, with all its allurements, its fleshly displays, its religions of human effort was cast aside by Paul. So he looked at the world as if it were a cross. And the world looked at Paul as though he were on a cross. You see, Paul is saying that all those things of the world, they're crucified, they're gone, they are as dead. And the world looks at me, well, as if I'm dead. That's okay, says Paul. Three crucifixions, really, that we see here. Of course, the crucifixion of Christ is the basis. The crucifixion of the world is the result of that. In our lives, we should see that. We should want to crucify everything that is of the world in our lives. And then finally, the crucifixion of self. And that's the victory. Well, we come to that place where we realize that actually, we are free when we choose to give it all away to Jesus when we make him the Lord of our life, when we surrender the right to ourselves to him. See, by the cross of Christ, we are reckoned dead. Firstly, to the law. Secondly, to the world. And thirdly, to self. And that's really the message that Paul has been trying to communicate throughout this letter. He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision avails anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. In view of the cross of Christ and a believer's new position with respect to the world, no outward religious symbol or lack of it means anything as a way of salvation. Nothing you can do or add to that that Christ has accomplished, we've said already. The only thing that matters is to be part of a new creation by the new birth. That's the only thing that's important. And then Paul says, as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them. And mercy and upon the Israel of God. Paul really just saying, you know, that for those that have chosen to walk, not trying to please men, not trying to walk according to the flesh, not walking by some religious system, but walking purely to please Christ Jesus, and have crucified the works of the flesh and everything, that have given their lives to Jesus, that are following him, well, he says, peace be on you. Now, Paul says something here that has caused a, a few issues over the years. Because he refers to the Israel of God. Now, this is a reference that has been used by those who are into something referred to as covenant theology. To support the view that the church is now the new Israel. That we're the spiritual Israel in a sense. That the blessings that were given to Israel have now all fallen upon the church. It's nonsense because they never ever stop to think that what happened to all the curses that were promised to Israel 
they tend to think, well, they, 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 yeah, we, we won't think about those. And really their tenacity seems to be derived from this support, or their attempt to support the amillennial view, that Jesus will come back when we've eventually done everything. When we've won the world for Christ, well, at that point, Jesus will come back, and then there'll be a period, an undefined period of time, where Jesus will rule on the earth. Maybe. And there's all sorts of different uh, viewpoints uh, when we look at end times and so on. But the, the, this verse, and because Paul speaks of the is peace be on them and mercy upon the Israel of God, what well, he's talking to the Galatians, so surely then is this not saying to the Gentiles that they are the Israel of God? Well, no, that's not what it's saying at all. See, some believers believe that that's the case, but this doesn't support it. The repetition in the, the Greek here, indicates that there's two groups of people in view. It's very obvious when you look at the context of the verse what Paul is saying. He's saying this blessing is pronounced on believing Galatians and on believing Jews. The Israel of God, quite simply, are those that believe. There's 74 other occurrences of the term Israel in the New Testament and every one of them refers to national Israel. So to suggest that here it means Gentile Christians, it's just nonsense. It doesn't fit anywhere in Scripture. Yet elsewhere, Paul refers to two kinds of Israelites, believing and unbelieving. It's as simple as that. In Romans 9 verse 6, Paul says, Not as though the word of God had taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. So he divides Israel into two groups. And he really makes it very clear that we have the group of Israel, of Jews that rejected Jesus, Romans 9 to 11 really is the whole portion that makes this very clear, particularly Romans 11. He speaks of physical Israel and the church, you know, believing Israel and those that were blinded. The two groups very clearly identified. But the nation as a whole has been blinded until we're told in Romans 11:25 the fullness of the Gentiles will come in. Paul also speaks of a remnant, those who've been saved by grace who believed and accepted Christ as their Messiah. And these are the ones that he's referring to here in Galatians 6.16 as the Israel of God. There is no problem with this in terms of believing this nonsense of covenant theology. See, the book of Galatians is concerned with the Gentiles who are attempting to attain their salvation through the law. The ones deceiving them, as we've seen already, were the Judaizers, who were the Jews demanded adherence to the law of Moses. To them, a Gentile convert had to convert to Judaism before he qualified for salvation through Christ. This is what we've seen already. And in verse 15, Paul states that the important thing for salvation is faith, resulting in the new man. And he mentions two elements, circumcision and uncircumcision. These two groups, the Jews, the Gentiles, are already mentioned by those very terms. So this has already effectively been drawn out for us so that we can see. So verse 16, Paul now pronounces a blessing on the members of the two groups who would follow this rule of salvation through faith alone. First group is them. Okay? That's the uncircumcision, the Gentiles. That's who's been devoting most of the epistle to. And the second group is the Israel of God. Okay? Or the circumcision, the Jewish believers. In contrast with the Judaizers, follow the rule of salvation again by grace through faith alone. So Paul's just speaking of those two groups. Fairly simple, really. And peace and mercy from God are available to those who walk according to this rule. That is according to the message, as I said a moment ago, of salvation by grace through faith alone. And that's the blessing that Paul now pronounces at this point on the believing Galatians and on the believing Jews. These covenant theologians, in order to make them both the same group, basically have to juggle and totally twist the text. If you want to dig into more of that, 
There's a great book by Arnold Fruchtenbaum called Israelology, The Missing Link in Systematic Theology. He totally destroys uh, the idea of covenant theology, but it is a problem. And unfortunately, most of the churches in this country still believe that. They still believe that the church has become the new Israel. Um, so it is an issue that you need to be aware of. Um, and as you study scripture, um, you'll see if you divide scripture rightly, you'll find that very clearly God has... The Jews have been blinded, but there is a remnant that have been saved, and ultimately all Israel will be brought back and they will know the Messiah as their Lord. Verse 17, From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Paul speaking really of the, the things that had happened. You know, Paul's calling as an apostle had been the message that he preached, and that had been challenged by the Judaizers. And really, he kind of calls an end for this trouble and problems that had occurred in Galatia. And he offers really as a final proof to the critics the marks on his own body. Because someone said that Paul was going along with this circumcision thing. Paul says, look at, look at me. Look at the state I'm in. The Greek word that is translated marks is the word stigmata. You may have heard that, that word before. And it just means the signs of ownership, such as were branded on slaves and cattle. Paul is in a sense saying, I'm proud that I've been beaten for Jesus. Now, that doesn't worry me, because it's been for him. So, because of the persecution that he's uh, suffered, because he'd not been a man pleaser, but for seeking to please Christ. And then he says, brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. And concludes the letter, again, by just speaking of this wonderful grace. He doesn't offer any personal salutations elsewhere in other letters. He does, but not here. Paul ends as he begins by expressing that heartfelt desire that the grace of God would be their abiding portion. And notice brethren once again. You know, uniquely among all of Paul's epistles, he ends with a reminder of his love for them, calling them brothers. So, again, just to conclude all that we've seen, justification is eternally secure in Christ. What a wonderful thing. Sanctification but it's not by keeping the law, it's not by doing things. You know, and I put my hand up here as a believer that tried for a number of years to get right with God after I was saved, to live a righteous life. I thought it had to be by my trying hard to be good, to be righteous, that I would be sanctified. And then all of a sudden you start stumbling across scriptures that tell you that sanctification is not something you do, it's something that he does. And then you go through that kind of wrestling, but then how does it happen? How, what's the, the process? And by God's grace, he leads us to that place of realizing it's all about love. It all comes down to love at the end of the day. There are rewards for faithfulness that we're clearly told, and that's a great driving and motivating factor. But the real thing that drives us is love. Our behavior does matter. And we've seen in all of these scriptures that we need to live. The epistle to Romans makes it very clear that we should be dead to that old life. But it's not because of the law that we're keeping. It's because of our love for Christ that we want to serve him now. The epistle to the Hebrews, again, deals with many of these similar issues. So let me just remind you in closing the contrast that we've looked at. The law is perfect. There's nothing wrong with the law. But no man can keep the law. And that's why we struggle. Because we're imperfect. The law is holy, and that's why sinners are condemned by it. The law is just, therefore cannot show mercy to the guilty. The law prohibits, but notice the contrast, that grace invites and gives. 
The law condemns the sinner. Grace redeems the sinner. You start to feel this love for God, for what he's done. And why would we want to serve the flesh, given all that he's done? You see, the law reveals sin. Yes, it does. But grace atones for sin. The law, or by the law, is the knowledge of sin. But grace, by grace, is the redemption from sin. The law was given by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The law demands obedience. Grace bestows and gives power to obey. Notice that. Grace bestows and gives power to obey. We just have to come to that place of saying, Lord, I can't do it on my own. I cannot be righteous. And the wonderful thing is, when we come to that place of realizing that Jesus says, you know what? You already are righteous. God says, be holy for I am holy. He doesn't say, try and be holy. You see, he pronounces us, you are holy. Why? Because he is holy. Because we've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And we've given, been given this liberty now to live as we want. But Paul says, as we've seen already, don't let that liberty be a license. Because we have love for Christ, for, for the brethren, we're going to want to serve him. And we're going to want to cast aside those unfruitful works of darkness. The Lord says, do and do not. Grace says it's done. The law says continue to be holy. Grace says it is finished. The law curses. Grace blesses. The law slays the sinner. Grace makes the sinner alive. And an abundant life as Jesus spoke of. The law shuts every mouth before God. Grace opens the mouth to praise God. The law condemns the best man. Grace saves the worst man. The law says pay what you owe. Grace says, I freely forgive you all. The law says the wages of sin is death. Grace says the gift of God is eternal life. The law says the soul that sins, it shall die. Grace says, believe and live. The law was done away in Christ. Grace abides forever. The law simply puts us under bondage. Any system of man, any system that you put in place yourself as a method of getting right with God. Any New Year's resolutions that you choose to try and put in place as we come to the end of our year and begin a new year. Anything you try and do is just going to put you in bondage and you won't be able to succeed. But the wonderful thing is that grace sets us in the liberty of the sons of God. And remember we spoke of that? That you've been given that place now. That place of inheritance, the place of an heir. And God says, go out and live this life joyfully, walking in the Spirit. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you for the liberty that we have now in Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would fill us with such a love and desire for you and to love the brethren, that we don't want to do anything that would fulfill the desires of the flesh that would live according to the, the things of this world. But as Paul said, we want to be crucified to the world. And Lord, all those things put away. Not because we can't have them, but because Lord, we don't want them anymore. We just want Jesus because we have been given this precious gift of being able to look upon our Savior and to see what he's done and to see this incredible work that we call grace. And so Father, we thank you for this journey through this wonderful book of Galatians. It's been so applicable for each one of us, Lord. 
God, impress these things upon our hearts, we pray, as we continue to grow in the knowledge of you and in that grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.